Part One of Lot Number Two Hundred Forty Nine by Arthur Conan Doyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lot Number Two Hundred Forty Nine by Arthur Conan Doyle. Of the dealings of Edward Bellingham with William Monkhouse Lee, and of the cause of the great terror of Abercrombie Smith, it may be that no absolute and final judgment will ever be delivered. It is true that we have the full and clear narrative of Smith himself, and such corroboration as he could look for from Thomas Stiles, the servant, from the Reverend Plumptree Peterson, fellow of olds, and from such other people as chance to gain some passing glance at this or that incident in a singular chain of events. Yet in the main, the story must rest upon Smith alone, and the most will think that it is more likely that one brain, however outwardly sane, has some subtle warp in its texture, some strange flaw in its workings, than that the path of nature has been overstepped in open day and so famed a center of learning and light as the University of Oxford. Yet when we think how narrow and how devious this path of nature is, how dimly we can trace it, for all our lamps of science, and how from the darkness which girds it round great and terrible possibilities loom ever shadowly upwards it is a bold and confident man who will put a limit to this strange bypass into which the human spirit may wander in a certain wing of what we will call old college in oxford there is a corner turret of an exceeding great age the heavy arch which spans the open door has bent downwards in the centre under the weight of its years and the grey lichen blotched blocks of stone are bound in it together with withes and strand of ivy as though the old mother had set herself to brace them up against wind and weather from a door a stone stair curves upwards spirally passing two landings and terminating in a third one its steps all shapeless and hollowed by the tread of so many generations of the seekers after knowledge life has flowed like water down this winding stair and water-like has left these smooth-worn grooves behind it from the long-gowned pedantic scholars of plantagenet days down to the young bloods of a later age how full and strong had been that tide of young english life and what was left now of all those hopes those strivings those fiery energies save here and there in some old-world churchyard a few scratches upon a stone and perchance a handful of dust in a mouldering coffin yet here were the silent stair and the grey old wall with bend and saltire and many other heraldic devices still to be right upon its surface like grotesque shadows thrown back from the days that had passed in the month of may in the year eighteen eighty four three young men occupied the sets of rooms which opened on to the separate landings of the old stair each set consisted simply of a sitting room and a bedroom while the two corresponding rooms upon the ground floor were used the one as a coal cellar and the other as the living room of the servant or scout thomas stiles whose duty it was to wait upon the three men above them to right and to left was a line of lecture rooms and of offices so that the dwellers in the old turn enjoyed a certain seclusion which made the chambers popular among the more studious undergraduates such were the three who occupied them now abercrombie smith above edward bellingham beneath them and william monkhouse lee upon the lowest story it was ten o'clock on a bright spring night and abercrombie smith lay back in his armchair his feet upon the fender and his briar root pipe between his lips in a similar chair and equally at his ease there lounged on the other side of the fireplace his old school friend jeffro hasty both men were in flannels for they had spent their evening upon the river but apart from their dress no one could look at their hard-cut alert faces without seeing that they were open-air men men whose minds and tastes turned naturally to all that was manly and robust hasty indeed was stroke of his college boat and smith was an even better oar but a coming examination had already cast its shadow over him and held him to his work save for the few hours a week which health demanded 
litter of medical books upon the table, with scattered bones, models, and anatomical plates, pointing to the extent as well as the nature of his studies, while a couple of single sticks and a set of boxing gloves above the mantelpiece hinted at the means by which, with Hasty's help, he might take his exercise in its most compressed and least distant form. They knew each other very well, so well that they could sit now in that soothing silence which is the very highest development of companionship. Have some whiskey, said Abercrombie Smith at last with twenty-two cloud bursts. Scotch in a jug and Irish in the bottle. No thanks, I'm in for the skulls. I don't liquor when I'm training. How about you? I'm reading hard. I think it best to leave it alone. Hasty nodded, and they relapsed into a contented silence. By the way, Smith, asked Hasty presently, have you made the acquaintance of either of the fellows under stair yet? Just a nod when we pass, nothing more. Huh. I should be inclined to let it stand at that. I know something of them both. Not much, but as much as I want. I don't think I should take them to my bosom if I were you. Not that there's much amiss with Monkhouse Lee. Meaning thin one? Precisely. He is a gentlemanly little fellow. I don't think there is any vice in him, but then you can't know him without knowing Bellingham. Meaning the fat one? Yes, the fat one. And he's a man whom I, for one, would rather not know. Abercrombie Smith raised his eyebrows and glanced across at his companion. What's up then? he asked. Drink? Cards? Cad? You used to not to be censorious. Ah, you evidently don't know the manner you wouldn't ask. There's something damnable about him. Something reptilian. My gorge always rises at him. I should put him down as a man with secret vices. An evil liver. He's no fool, though. They say that he is one of the best men in his line that they have ever had in the college. Medicine or classics? Eastern languages. He's a demon at them. Chillingworth met him somewhere above the second cataract last long, and he told me that he just prattled to the Arabs as if he had been born and nursed and weaned among them. He talked Coptic to the Copts, and Hebrew to the Jews, and Arabic to the Bedouins, and they were all ready to kiss the hem of his frock coat. There are some old hermit johnnies up in those parts who sit on rocks and scowl and spit at the casual stranger. Well, when they saw this chap Bellingham before he had said five words, they just lay down on their bellies and wriggled. Chillingworth said that he never saw anything like it. Bellingham seemed to take it as his right to and strutted about among them and talked down to them like a Dutch uncle. Pretty good for an undergrad. Of olds, wasn't it? Why do you say you can't know Lee without knowing Bellingham? Because Bellingham is engaged to his sister Evelyn. Such a bright little girl, Smith. I know the whole family well. It's disgusting to see that brute with her. A toad and a dove, that's what they always remind me of. Abercrombie Smith grinned and knocked his ashes out against the side of the grate. You show every card in your hand, old chap, said he. What a prejudiced, green-eyed, evil-thinking old man it is. You have really nothing against a fellow except that. Well, I've known her ever since she was as long as that cherrywood pipe, and I don't like to see her taking risks. And it is a risk. He looks beastly, and he has a beastly temper, a venomous temper. You remember his row with Long Norton? No, you always forget that I am a freshman. Ah, it was last winter, of course. Well, you know the towpath along by the river. There were several fellows going along it, Bellingham in front, when they came on an old market woman coming the other way. It had been raining, you know what those fields are like when it has rained, and the path ran between the river and a great pole that was nearly as broad. Well, what does this swine do but keep the path and push the old girl into the mud where she and her marketings came to terrible grief? It was a blackguard thing to do, and Long Norton, who was as gentle a fellow as ever stepped, told him what he thought of it. One word led to another, and it ended in Norton laying a stick across the fellow's shoulders. 
There was the deuce of a fuss about it, and it's a treat to see the way in which Bellingham looks at Norton when they meet now. By Jove, Smith, it's nearly eleven o'clock. No hurry. Light your pipe again. Not I. I'm supposed to be in training. Here I've been sitting gossiping when I ought to have been safe with Tuck Tuck. I'll borrow your skull if you can share it. Williams has had mine for a month. I'll take the little bones of your ear, too, if you are sure you won't need them. Thanks very much. Never mind a bag. I can carry them very well under my arm. Good night, my son, and take my tip as to your neighbor. When Hasty, bearing his anatomical plunder, had clattered off down the winding stair, Abercrombie Smith hurled his pipe into the waste paper basket and, drawing his chair nearer to the lamp, plunged into a formidable green-covered volume adorned with great colored maps of that strange eternal kingdom of which we are the hapless and helpless monarchs. Though a freshman at Oxford, the student was not so in medicine, for he had worked four years at Glasgow and at Berlin, and this coming examination would place him finally as a member of his profession. With his firm mouth, broad forehead, and clear-cut, somewhat hard-featured face, he was a man who, if he had no brilliant talent, was yet so dogged, so patient, and so strong that he might in the end overtop a more showy genius. A man who can hold his own among Scotchmen and North Germans is not a man to be easily set back. Smith had left a name at Glasgow and at Berlin, and he was bent now upon doing as much at Oxford if hard work and devotion could accomplish it. He sat reading for about an hour, and the hands of the noisy carriage clock upon the side table were rapidly closing together upon the twelve, when a sudden sound fell upon the student's ear. A sharp, rather shrill sound, like the hissing intake of a man's breath who gasps under some strong emotion. Smith laid down his book and slanted his ear to listen. There was no one on either side or above him, so that the interruption came certainly from the neighbor beneath, the same neighbor of whom Hasty had given so unsavory an account. Smith knew him only as a flabby, pale-faced man of silent and studious habits, a man whose lamp threw a golden bar from the old turret even after he had extinguished his own. This community and lateness had formed a certain silent bond between them. It was soothing to Smith when the hours stole on towards dawn to feel that there was another so close who set as small a value upon his sleep as he did. Even now, as his thoughts turned towards him, Smith's feelings were kindly. Hasty was a good fellow, but he was rough, strong-fired, with no imagination or sympathy. He could not tolerate departures from what he looked upon as the model type of manliness. If a man cannot be measured by a public school standard, then he was beyond the pale with Hasty. Like so many who are themselves robust, he was apt to confuse the constitution with the character, to ascribe to want of principle what was really a want of circulation. Smith, with his stronger mind, knew his friend's habit, and made allowance for it now as his thoughts turned towards the man beneath him. There was no return of the singular sound, and Smith was about to turn to his work once more, when suddenly there broke out in the silence of the night a hoarse cry, a positive scream, the call of a man who was moved and shaken beyond all control. Smith sprang out of his chair and dropped his book. He was a man of fairly firm fiber, but there was something in this sudden, uncontrollable shriek of horror which chilled his blood and prickled in his skin. Coming in such a place and at such an hour, it brought a thousand fantastic possibilities into his head. Should he rush down, or was it better to wait? He had all the national hatred of making a scene, and he knew so little of his neighbor that he would not lightly intrude upon his affairs. For a moment he stood in doubt, and even as he balanced the matter there was a quick rattle of footsteps upon the stairs, and young Monkhouse Lee, half-dressed in his white ashes, burst into his room. "'Come down,' he gasped. "'Bellingham's ill.' Abercrombie Smith followed him closely downstairs into the sitting-room which was beneath his own, and intense as he was upon the matter in hand, he could not but take an amazed glance around him as he crossed to the threshold. It was such a chamber as he had never seen before, a museum rather than a study, 
Walls and ceilings were thickly covered with a thousand strange relics from Egypt and the East. Tall, angular figures bearing burdens or weapons stalked in an uncouth frieze around the apartments. Above were bull-headed, stork-headed, cat-headed, owl-headed statues with viper-crowned, almond-eyed monarchs and strange beetle-like deities cut out of the blue Egyptian lapis lazuli. Horus and Isis and Osiris peeped down from every niche and shelf, while across the ceiling a true son of old Nile, a great hanging-jawed crocodile, was slung in a double noose. In the center of this singular chamber was a large square table littered with papers, bottles, and the dried leaves of some graceful palm-like plant. These varied objects had all been heaped together in order to make room for a mummy case, which had been conveyed from the wall, as was evident from the gap there, and laid across the front of the table. The mummy itself, a horrid black withered thing, like a charred head on a gnarled bush, was lying half out of the case, with its claw-like hand and bony forearm resting upon the table. Propped up against the sarcophagus was an old yellow scroll papyrus, and in front of it, in a wooden armchair, sat the owner of the room, his head thrown back, his widely opened eyes directed in a horrified stare to the crocodile above him, and his blue thick lips puffing loudly with every expiration. He's dying, cried Monkhouse-Lee distractedly. He was a slim, handsome young fellow, olive-skinned and dark-eyed, of a Spanish rather than of an English type, with a Celtic intensity of manner which contrasted with the Saxon phlegm of Abercrombie Smith. Only a faint, I think, said the medical student. Just give me a hand with him. You take his feet. Now on to the sofa. Can you kick all those little wooden devils off? What a litter it is. Now he will be all right if we undo his collar and give him some water. What has he been up to at all? I don't know. I heard him cry out. I ran up. I know him pretty well, you know. It is very good of you to come down. His heart is going like a pair of castanets, said Smith, laying his hand on the breast of the unconscious man. He seems to me to be frightened all to pieces. Chuck the water over him. What a face he has got on him. It was indeed a strange and most repellent face, for color and outline were equally unnatural. It was white, not with the ordinary pallor of fear, but with an absolutely bloodless white, like the underside of a soul. He was very fat, but gave the impression of having at some time been considerably fatter, for his skin hung loosely in creases and folds, and was shot with a meshwork of wrinkles. Short, stubbly brown hair bristled up from his scalp, with a pair of thick, wrinkled ears protruding at the sides. His light gray eyes were still open, the pupils dilated and the balls projecting in a fixed and horrid stare. It seemed to Smith as he looked down upon him that he had never seen nature's danger signals flying so plainly upon a man's countenance, and his thoughts turned more seriously to the warning which Hasty had given him an hour before. What the deuce can have frightened him so, he asked. It's the mummy. The mummy? How then? I don't know. It's beastly and morbid. I wish he would drop it. It's the second fright he has given me. It was the same last winter. I found him just like this with that horrid thing in front of him. What does he want with the mummy, then? Oh, he's a crank, you know. It's his hobby. He knows more about these things than any man in England. But I wish he wouldn't. Ah, he's beginning to come, too. A faint tinge of color had begun to steal back into Bellingham's ghastly cheeks, and his eyelids shivered like a sail after a calm. He clasped and unclasped his hands, drew a long, thin breath between his teeth, and suddenly jerking up his head, threw a glance of recognition around him. As his eyes fell upon the mummy, he sprang off the sofa, seized the roll of papyrus, thrust it into a drawer, turned the key, and then staggered back onto the sofa. 
What's up? he asked. What do you chaps want? You've been shrieking out and making no end of a fuss, said Monkhouse If our neighbor here from above hadn't come down, I'm sure I don't know what I should have done with you. Ah, it's Abercrombie Smith, said Bellingham, glancing up at him. How very good of you to come in. What a fool I am. Oh, what a fool I am. He sunk his head onto his hands and burst into peal after peal of hysterical laughter. Look here. Drop it, cried Smith, shaking him roughly by the shoulder. Your nerves are all in a jangle. You must drop these little midnight games with mummies or you'll be going off your chump. You're all on wires now. I wonder, said Bellingham, whether you would be as cool as I am if you had seen. What then? Oh, nothing. It meant that I wonder if you could sit up at night with a mummy without trying your nerves. I have no doubt that you are quite right. I dare say that I have been taking it out of myself too much lately. But I am all right now. Please don't go, though. Just wait for a few minutes until I am quite myself. The room is very close, remarked Lee, throwing open the window and letting in the cool night air. It's balsamic resin, said Bellingham. He lifted up one of the dried palmate leaves from the table and frizzled it over the chimney of the lamp. It broke away into heavy smoke wreaths, and a pungent, biting odor filled the chamber. It's the sacred plant, the plants of the priests, he remarked. Do you know anything of Eastern languages, Smith? Nothing at all. Not a word. The answer seemed to lift a weight from the Egyptologist's mind. By the way, he continued, how long was it from the time that you ran down until I came to my senses? Not long. Some four or five minutes. I thought it could not be very long, said he, drawing a long breath. But what a strange thing unconsciousness is. There is no measurement to it. I cannot tell from my own sensations if it were seconds or weeks. Now that gentleman on the table was packed up in the days of the 11th dynasty, some 40 centuries ago, and yet if he can find his tongue, he would tell us that this lapse of time has been but a closing of the eyes and a reopening of them. He is a singularly fine mummy, Smith. Smith stepped over to the table and looked down with the professional eye at the black and twisted form in front of him. The features, though horribly discolored, were perfect, and two little nut-like eyes still lurked in the depths of the black hollow sockets. The blotched skin was drawn tightly from bone to bone, and a tangled wrap of black coarse hair fell over the ears. Two thin teeth, like those of a rat, overlay the shriveled lower lip. In its crouching position, with bent joints and craned head, there was a suggestion of energy about the horrid thing which made Smith's gorge rise. The gaunt ribs, with their parchment-like covering, were exposed, and the sunken, leaden-hued abdomen with the long slit where the embalmer had left his mark. But the lower limbs were wrapped around with coarse yellow bandages. A number of little clove-like pieces of myrrh and of cassia were sprinkled over the body and lay scattered on the inside of the case. I don't know his name, said Bellingham, passing his hand over the shriveled head. You see the outer sarcophagus with the inscriptions is missing. Lot 249 is all the title he has now. You see it printed on his case. That was his number in the auction at which I picked him up. He has been a very pretty sort of fellow in his day, remarked Abercrombie Smith. He has been a giant. His mummy is six feet seven in length, and that would be a giant over there, for they were never a very robust race. Feel these great knotted bones, too. He would be a nasty fellow to tackle. Perhaps these very hands helped to build the stones into the pyramids, suggested Monkhouse looking down with disgust in his eyes at the crooked, unclean talons. No fear. This fellow has been pickled in natron and looked after in the most approved style. They did not serve Hodsman in that fashion. Salt or bitumen was enough for them. 
It has been calculated that this sort of thing cost about 730 pounds in our money. Our friend was a noble at the least. What do you make of that small inscription near his feet, Smith? I told you that I know no eastern tongue. Ah, so you did. It is the name of the embalmer, I take it. A very conscientious worker he must have been. I wonder how many modern works will survive four thousand years. He kept on speaking lightly and rapidly, but it was evident to Abercrombie Smith that he was still palpitating with fear. His hands shook, his lower lip trembled, and look where he would, his eye always came sliding round to his gruesome companion. Through all his fear, however, there was a suspicion of triumph in his tone and manner. His eyes shone and his footstep, as he paced the room, was brisk and jaunty. He gave the impression of a man who has gone through an ordeal, the marks of which he still bears upon him, but which has helped him to his end. "'You're not going yet,' he cried, as Smith rose from the sofa. At the prospect of solitude, his fears seemed to crowd back upon him, and he stretched out a hand to detain him. "'Yes, I must go. I have my work to do. You are all right now. I think that with your nervous system you should take up some less morbid study.' Oh, I am not nervous as a rule, and I have unwrapped mummies before. You fainted last time, observed Monk Housley. Ah, yes, so I did. Well, I must have a nerve tonic or a course of electricity. You are not going, Lee? I'll do whatever you wish, Ned. Then I'll come down with you and have a shakedown on your sofa. Good night, Smith. I am so sorry to have disturbed you with my foolishness. They shook hands, and as the medical student stumbled up the spiral and irregular stair, he heard a key turn in the door, and the steps of his two new acquaintances as they descended to the lower floor. In this strange way began the acquaintance between Edward Bellingham and Abercrombie Smith, an acquaintance which the latter, at least, had no desire to push forward. Bellingham, however, appeared to have taken a fancy to his rough-spoken neighbor, and made his advances in such a way that he could hardly be repulsed without absolute brutality. Twice he called to thank Smith for his assistance, and many times afterwards he looked in with books, papers, and such other civilities as two bachelor neighbors can offer each other. He was, as Smith soon found, a man of wide reading, with Catholic tastes and an extraordinary memory. His manner, too, was so pleasing and suave that one came, after a time, to overlook his repellent appearance. For a jaded and wearied man, he was no unpleasant companion, and Smith found himself, after a time, looking forward to his visits, and even returning them. Clever as he undoubtedly was, however, the medical student seemed to detect a dash of insanity in the man. He broke out at times into a high, inflated style of talk which was in contrast with the simplicity of his life. It is a wonderful thing, he cried, to feel that one can command powers of good and evil, a ministering angel or a demon of vengeance. And again, among Monkhouse Lee, he said, Lee is a good fellow, an honest fellow, but he is without strength or ambition. He would not make a fit partner for a man with a great enterprise. He would not make a fit partner for me. At such hints and innuendos, stolid Smith, puffing solemnly in his pipe, would simply raise his eyebrows and shake his head, with little interjections of medical wisdom as to earlier hours and fresher air. One habit Bellingham had developed of late which Smith knew to be a frequent herald of a weakening mind. He appeared to be forever talking to himself. At late hours of the night, when there could be no visitor with him, Smith could still hear his voice beneath him in a low, muffled monologue, sunk almost to a whisper, and yet very audible in the silence. This solitary babbling annoyed and distracted the student, so that he spoke more than once to his neighbor about it. 
bellingham however flushed up at the charge and denied curtly that he had uttered a sound indeed he showed more annoyance over the matter than the occasion seemed to demand if ever Crombie smith had any doubt as to his own ears he had not to go far to find corroboration tom stiles the little wrinkled manservant who had attended the wants of the lodgers in the turf for a longer time than any man's memory could carry him was sorely put to it over the same matter if you please sir said he as he tidied down the top chamber one morning do you think mr bellingham is all right sir all right stiles yes sir right in his head sir why should he not be then well i don't know sir his habits has changed of late he's not the same man he used to be though i make free to say that he was never quite one of my gentlemen like mr hasey or yourself sir he's took to talking to himself something awful i wonder it don't disturb you i don't know what to make of him sir i don't know what business it is of yours styles well i takes an interest mr smith it may be forward of me but i can't help it i feel sometimes as if i was mother and father to my young gentleman it all falls on me when things go wrong and the relations come but mr bellingham sir i want to know what it is that walks about his room sometimes when he's out and when the door's locked on the outside eh you're talking nonsense styles maybe so sir but i heard it more than once with my own ears rubbish styles very good sir you'll ring the bell if you want me abercrombie smith gave little heed to the gossip of the old manservant but a small incident occurred a few days later which left an unpleasant effect upon his mind and brought the words of styles forcibly to his memory bellingham had come up to see him late one night and was entertaining him with an interesting account of the rock tombs of beni hassan in upper egypt when smith whose hearing was remarkably acute distinctly heard the sound of a door opening on the landing below there's some fellow gone in and out of your room he remarked bellingham sprang up and stood helpless for a moment with the expression of a man who was half incredulous and half afraid i, I surely locked it i am almost positive that i locked it he stammered no one could have opened it why i hear someone coming up the steps now said smith bellingham rushed out through the door slammed it loudly behind him and hurried down the stairs about halfway down smith heard him stop and he thought he caught the sound of whispering a moment later the door beneath him shut a key creaked in a lock and bellingham with beads of moisture upon his pale face ascended the stairs once more and re-entered the room it's all right he said throwing himself down on a chair it was that fool of a dog he'd pushed the door open i don't know how i came to forget to lock it i didn't know you kept the dog said smith looking very thoughtfully at the disturbed face of his companion yes i haven't had him long i must get rid of him he is a great nuisance he must be if you find it so hard to shut him up i should have thought that shutting the door would have been enough without locking it i want to prevent old styles from letting him out he's of some value you know and it would be awkward to lose him i am a bit of a dog fancier myself said smith still gazing hard at his companion from the corner of his eyes perhaps you'll let me have a look at it certainly but i am afraid it cannot be tonight. i have an appointment is that clock right then i am a quarter of an hour late already you'll excuse me i am sure he picked up his cap and hurried from the room in spite of his appointment smith heard him re-enter his own chamber and lock his door upon the inside the interview left a disagreeable impression upon the medical student's mind bellingham had lied to him and lied so clumsily that it looked as if he had desperate reasons for concealing the truth smith knew that his neighbor had no dog he knew also that the step which he had heard upon the stairs was not the step of an animal 
but if it were not, then what could it be? There was old Styles' statement about something which used to pace the room at times when the owner was absent. Could it be a woman? Smith rather inclines the view. If so, it would mean disgrace and expulsion to Bellingham if it were discovered by the authorities, so that his anxiety and falsehoods might be accounted for. And yet it was inconceivable that an undergraduate could keep a woman in his rooms without being instantly detected. Be the explanation what it might, there was something ugly about it, and Smith determined, as he turned to his books, to discourage all further attempts at intimacy on the part of his soft-spoken and ill-favored neighbor. But his work was destined to interruption that night. He had hardly caught up the broken threads when a firm, heavy footfall came three steps at a time from below, and hasty, in blazer and flannels, burst into the room. "'Still at it,' said he, plumping down into his wanted armchair. "'What a chap you are to stew!' I believe an earthquake might come and knock Oxford into a cocked hat, and you would sit perfectly placid with your books among the ruins. However, I won't bore you long. Three whiffs of backy, and I am off. What's the news, then? asked Smith, cramming a plug of bird's eye into his briar with his forefinger. Nothing very much. Wilson made seventy for the freshman against the eleven. They say that they will play him instead of Buddycomb, for Buddycomb is clean off guard. He used to be able to bowl a little, but it's nothing but half volleys and long hops now. Medium right, suggested Smith, with the intense gravity which comes upon a varsity man when he speaks of athletics. Inclining to fast, with a work from leg. Come with the arm about three inches or so. He used to be nasty on a wet wicket. Oh, by the way, have you heard about Long Norton? What's that? He's been attacked. Attacked? Yes, just as he was turning out of the high street and within a hundred yards of the gate of Olds. But who? Ah, that's the rub. If you said what, you would be more grammatical. Norton swears that it was not human and, indeed, from the scratches on his throat, I should be inclined to agree with them. What then? Have we come down to spooks? Abercrombie Smith puffed his scientific contempt. Well, no, I don't think that is quite the idea either. I am inclined to think that if any showman has lost a great ape lately, and the brood is in these parts, a jury would find a true bill against it. Norton passes that way every night, you know, about the same hour. There's a tree that hangs low over the path, the big elm from Rainey's garden. Norton thinks the thing dropped on him out of the tree. Anyhow, he was nearly strangled by two arms, which, he says, were as strong and as thin as steel bands. He saw nothing, only those beastly arms that tightened and tightened on him. He yelled his head nearly off, and a couple of chaps came running, and the thing went over the wall like a cat. He never got a fair sight of it the whole time. It gave Norton a shake-up, I can tell you. I tell him it has been as good as a change at the seaside for him. A garroter, most likely, said Smith. Very possible. Norton says not, but we don't mind what he says. The garroter had long nails and was pretty smart at swinging himself over walls. By the way, your beautiful neighbor would be pleased if he heard about it. He had a grudge against Norton, and he's not a man from what I know of him to forget his little debts. But hello, old chap, what have you got in your novel? Nothing, Smith answered curtly. He had started in his chair, and the look had flashed over his face which comes upon a man who is struck suddenly by some unpleasant idea. You looked as if something I had said had taken you on the raw. By the way, you have made the acquaintance of Master B since I looked in last, have you not? Young Monkhouse Lee told me something to that effect. Yes, I know him slightly. He has been up here once or twice. Well, you're big enough and ugly enough to take care of yourself. He's not what I should call exactly a healthy sort of Johnny, though, no doubt. He's very clever and all that. But you'll soon find out for yourself. Lee is all right. He's a very decent little fellow. 
Well, so long, old chap. I row Mullins for the vice chancellor's pod on Wednesday week, so mind you come down in case I don't see you before. End of part one of lot number 249 by Arthur Conan Doyle.